In Christ alone, our hope is found. Let's open our Bibles to Romans 8. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, we would love to have them. So if you would, pass them to the aisle and we'll collect them and pray for you this week. Romans 8, 1 through 4, I want to talk about life in the Spirit, set free from the bondage of sin and death. And I'm hoping this morning for you to see uh, the theme of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans, particularly in chapter 8, and the Trinity working in your life to bring redemption. Charles Swindoll was not exaggerating when he wrote, Only God's Spirit can take the barrenness of our lives and bring a refreshing spirit of renewal and joy. Swindoll describes this contrast of life in the Spirit with life in the bondage of sin by way of a journey. He writes, A journey taken through the dry wasteland of West Texas. If you've ever been through West Texas, the image comes immediately. It's brown and dark and dusty hot, uh, where as far as the eye can see, there's nothing but a barren wilderness. If you continue to press northwest through Texas, you enter New Mexico and eventually reach the Santa Fe Trail. And if you continue, you ascend 7,000 feet until you get to the eastern side of the Sangre de, de Cristo Mountains on the Colorado border. And suddenly, everything's green. And you're gazing at the majestic snow-capped peaks of the Rocky Mountains. Amazing, he writes. So it is, Swindoll continues, when we move from the dry barrenness of sin's wilderness to the lush, green magnificence of life in the Spirit. The Spirit washes away the dust of sin and brings new life, fresh perspective, divine enablement, and great joy. Jesus promised such a life in the last hours with the disciples. He said to them in the upper room that if you believe me and follow me, that I will not leave you as orphans, but another will come. The Holy Spirit will come and will dwell in you and make his home with you and be with you. I will be with you forever. When we come to Romans chapter 8, it could rightly be seen as a chapter that confirms what Jesus promised in the upper room and a detailed description of the source of the believer's power to live the Christian life. And so if you'll think about the contrast of what it means to be without Christ, without hope in this world, as Ephesians 2 describes it, and the barrenness of of that life, and brought into the lush fields of his salvation. And to remember that scene in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He guides me into green pastures. He protects me and cares for me. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, if you're new with us, you're coming in at really a great time in Romans. As we come to chapter 8, which we're calling the Mount Everest of Scripture, uh, Not that it's more important or has more validity than other parts of Scripture, but the promises that are given to the believer here. And we'll come to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in just a moment, but I want to take a moment and and look at the ground we covered last week in verse 1. Accepting no condemnation in Christ Jesus. What a declaration. There is therefore now 
No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Would you get your mind and heart around that promise? It really is the theme of the gospel, and I guess the claim could be made for the entire Bible, how the, the ruin of Eden's sin could be lifted through the work of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've wondered in salvation, you know, I hear Christians say, you know, I need to be saved. Um, you know, I need to be redeemed. There are all these words that are used that may not, you need to receive the gospel, somebody will tell you that. What does that, what does that mean? What does it mean to be saved? Saved from what? Every human being, the Bible tells us, is in need of God's salvation. Amen. Everyone. Uh, and when you are saved, what are you saved from? Common response for those oriented with the Bible, well, we've been saved from sin's penalty. Sin, my sins are forgiven. Judgment's been lifted. Um, condemnation is gone. Um, the deal is done. It is by grace that I've been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And that is true. But I, I, in our walk through Romans, I want to note for you this, this reality. Sometimes we'll hear people say, well-meaningly, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. But what, what or whom goes to hell? So one of the things that we've come face to face with in the book of Romans is the wrath of God and that it abides on us without Jesus Christ. And that it really is an urgency to come to terms with the one who created me in his image, I'm at odds with because of my sin. His laws I've broken. His glory I've disregarded. Part of being a sinner is doing things my own way and living to please myself. So it is a fearful thing to, to fall in the hands of the living God, the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 10.31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Jesus warned about this extensively. He said he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He spoke of eternal punishment in Matthew 25 in grim terms, sober terms. So our study in Romans began with that sober assessment of the human condition. The wrath of God, Romans 1.18 tells us, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we even see it on display now. Reading Romans 1 is a story of human history when a people, when a civilization, when a culture rejects God's ways and God's truth revealed naturally through creation and through His Holy Word. It's in a free fall. R.C. Sproul once said, if we love people, we will warn them of the consequences of dying in their sins. And so it's a wonderful thing as a preacher of the gospel to be able to say, look, in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. That's the purpose of his death on the cross. He paid the penalty that we rightly deserve. And by trusting in him, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to us and we're no longer under condemnation. Why is that so hard to receive? Well, as we noted last week, 
we have a past. And for some, the past drags stubbornly in your life. And you have guilt issues and you have sorrows and you have regrets. I've often mentioned the phrase that if tears were indelible ink, we'd all be stained forever. Amen. So, what do we do with our past? The message of the gospel is we take it to the one who has forgiven us of our past. And we receive what Christ has done for us. Not only do we have a past, we have a conscience that's been tinkered with through our sinful choices through a lifetime. And um, in some cases, it's become hardened, it's become desensitized, and we need to follow the, the counsel of Martin Luther, who said, who said that our conscience needs to be trained by the Word of God. And that, again, leads us to Christ. Not only do we have a past, not only do we have a conscience, but we have a present. <laughs> we have the way we've lived this week. And we have that to contend with. So what's my hope when I gather in this assembly, which every Christian is called to be a part of a local church? What hope do I have with my present? Jesus Christ, who's forgiven me of my present. All my present sins, all my past sins, all the sins I'm yet to, to commit because what he has done in his redemption of my life and your life and every believer is I have a standing with God that is not moved with the weather or my performance. I also have an enemy, but Jesus has taken care of him as well. He's a defeated foe. He's called the accuser of the brethren in Scripture. He'll take things and throw it up in our face, and we know them. And we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Our enemy has been destroyed. We have a great Savior. There's still another perspective about why we can't receive in Christ why I'm not condemned. Or dealing with guilt or, guilt or feeling like I never can measure up, which we never can. That's part of winning the battle here, is that Jesus paid it all and to him we owe. But there's another perspective, the feeling of emptiness, but not really getting uh, the re religious approach. The person, I'm, I'm thinking of the person who, who hates the consequences of sin, but doesn't really see the self-destructing effects of stopping what they're doing. I don't like multiple marriages. But you're looking for love in all the wrong places. I don't like to wake up with a hangover. But you think, you're convinced in your mind, the way to spend your Friday and Saturday nights are in atmospheres that are going to take you down that same road every time. And you think that's fun. The gospel confronts us with these old patterns of living. And we hear the voice of Christ say, come Follow me, live for me, surrender your life to me. When believers talk about the gospel, we say, we love the gospel. We love the message of what God has done through Jesus Christ. And maybe unbelievers would think, well, what does the gospel mean? Well, it means good news. Yeah, but how is this good news? I, I honestly believe many lost people, when we talk about the joy of our salvation, and we talk about our sins being forgiven, it's at a, they're at a loss. 
What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be redeemed? When we say, I'm saved, I've I've received by faith the salvation God has given through Christ. I'm saved from the wrath of God, the judgment of God. I'm saved from hell and condemnation. All of that is good because no one wants any of those dreadful things in their life or future. Bearing down on them. We as we say as believers, I'm forgiven, and that's a glorious thing. David said in Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But still there's a loss with that, of forgiveness. I don't really feel like I need to be forgiven that much. I mean, compared to her, I'm pretty good. Compared to him, it's a, it's a slam dunk. And that's really on its head. Listen to the insights from this reliable pastor. And I'm not speaking of myself. (laughs) The only value forgiveness has is if there is a relationship that has been wrecked and you really, really want to have it restored because the restoration would be so pleasant to you. And so forgiveness in and of itself is about relationships. For example, if I say something really crabby to my wife when I wake up in the morning and she's offended and I'm feeling angry and I walk out of the room and go down to the kitchen and she's in the kitchen standing at the sink and I'm over there pouring my cereal and there's ice in the air. I know what needs to happen. I need to be forgiven. And I need to ask forgiveness. Why? I want her back. Right? When I walk over to the sink and kiss her on the back of the neck, I don't want her to jerk away and walk out of the room. I would like her to turn around and reciprocate. So the only value that forgiveness has is to get my wife back. Therefore, gospel by itself doesn't say anything. Again, if someone asks good news about what, you, you could say forgiveness, but that doesn't mean anything because it, it is all about what forgiveness opens the door to. So we have to go further and say, what does it open the door to? What does Christianity say this thing called forgiveness opens the door to? One word, life. Life and joy and peace that never ends. We get a foretaste of it here, but it's a destiny in Christ. Life and joy and peace and forgiveness. And we, we taste for the first time what it begins, uh, what, what eternity will be. We, it's a foretaste of glory divine. So... Forgiveness matters most when you see a relationship that's on the rocks. And nothing's more on the rocks than our relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. Not only do we need to know what we're saved from, to understand the beauty of the gospel is to know what we're saved for. We are saved for joy. Everlasting joy. I think of Psalm 16. In your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In John 15, Jesus talking about in the vine and the branches, he, he, he speaks about 
this joy in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So joy that comes in knowing God and what he's done for us, that he's created us, he's redeemed us in Christ. He has forgiven us. In Christ we see him as our all in all. He's what we need most. Jesus spoke of this as the pearl of great price. And so I would urge you to see maybe what you've never seen before, that the reason I need Christ is that my relationship with God is fractured. It's broken. And I need him in, in a world that is looking for love in all the wrong places, in a world that's looking for purpose and meaning in all the wrong spots. We come to Christ. He's promised to give us life and to give it abundantly. Now, let me just say a, another word before we move on. And that is, you know, in, in no condemnation, I'm, I'm speaking to the church this morning. Most in this room today, the vast majority in this room, are professing believers in Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, verse 1 applies to you. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So what happens when a Christian sins? When they begin to stack up in your life? What happens when a Christian sins? You need to realize that our legal standing with God is unchanged. To be in Christ means I'm not innocent one day and guilty the next. I've been justified by faith. My position with God is solid. It's never been, it's never been about my performance. Yes, God's called me to live a surrendered life to Him, but my salvation is not based on my performance. So when I sin, my legal standing with God remains unchanged because by faith in Jesus Christ, I've been declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven. When a believer sins, our fellowship with God is disrupted. That should bother us. That should bring conviction to our life. It's disrupted and we should turn from it and talk to our Father right away about it. But you know, this whole conversation also is a warning against, um, it, it, uh, against false assurances. Many have false assurances because I go to church, because I'm from a good family, because I've never been arrested. I asked one lady one time, um, if you were to die today and go to heaven, would you go to heaven? She said, yes. I said, why? Because I didn't kill my ex-husband. <laughs> That's not the, you're not going to get in by that. It's not by what you do or don't do. It's by what Christ has done, who is our hope. The Westminster, Westminster Confession of Faith wisely says, although they never can fall from the state of justification, speaking of believers, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, and renew their faith and repentance. Amen and amen. Let's make some progress. That's the introduction. Number two, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Verses two through four. What a mouthful that is. Um, that the word four in verse two introduces the reason there's no condemnation for the believer. The spirit has replaced the law that produces only sin and death. The spirit of the living God. 
In Romans 5, if you'll turn the page back, it says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. And Paul uses the, the command on covetousness as kind of an indicator of his sinful heart. He mentions that in chapter 7, that, that, that our sinful passions are aroused by the law. And we know that by experience. The line is drawn. We're told not to go beyond the line. What do we do? We think about strategies on how to cross the line. Aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to produce the fruit of death, but now we are released from the law. Not that the law was problematic. We were, we were the problem. The law was not able to save because of our inability to keep it. Having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The law of the Spirit of life, he says, is really a forceful and effective operation of the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine. And so as we present ourselves to God, as we're commanded to do, we, we will find that our attitudes and our feelings and our actions about, about love start to change as the Holy Spirit moves within us, renewing our minds. We're called to renew our minds day by day through God's truth. And we begin to embrace a new standard for living. And change begins to happen. That's the problem with viewing the gospel and the Christian life as a self-help program. The moment you run into a struggle, that's a, that's a tough hill to climb, we say to ourselves in the Christian life. How am I ever going to overcome these feelings, whatever they may be, be? Unforgiveness, bitterness, guilt. How am I going to overcome these feelings? Certainly the gospel couldn't be right. And so we go try another silver bullet um, solution to deep spiritual problems. I'm wanting us to see in Romans 8, 2 through 4, that God has given us the power for change in the Holy Spirit. And that our sanctification is a lifetime walk with the Lord. The Spirit of God supplies the power of God to our frail life efforts. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can live pleasing and obedient lives to the Lord. Perfect? No. In need of ongoing forgiveness and grace? Yes. But we can live a life by faith that is pleasing to Him. Now, there are 27 references to, of the Holy Spirit. There are 27 references to the Holy Spirit in the letter of Romans. And 17 of them are in Romans 8. It's, the, it's one of the major themes of this chapter. In verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, verse 5 tells us. Verse 6, to set your mind on the Spirit is life and peace. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in you, verse 9 says, believer. And if the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you, you don't belong to Christ. Verse 10, the Spirit of life because of righteousness Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen to the words of Owen Strand as you think about power to change, as you think about the spirit of God dwelling within you, believer. Dr. Strand writes, you cannot heal your struggling marriage, save your kids, 
transform your church, repair your family, overcome your sin patterns, absolve your guilt and condemnation, resolve your loneliness, and deliver yourself from evil and pride. But God can. God can. The Spirit of God who dwells within you can, can bring change into your life. Well, I wanted it done last week. It doesn't work that way. It's an ongoing walk with the Lord as we surrender day by day. The Christian life is a hard walk. It's a, dying to yourself is not fun. So here we have, okay, you just said it was unbelievable joy and life and peace. Now you're telling me it's, it's, it's hard. And it doesn't happen in a moment in a day or on my timetable. But I'm called every day to submit myself to God that His Spirit may conform me into the image of Jesus Christ. How long does that take? A lifetime. And it will be an upward trajectory until we see Him, until we reach glory where we will, we will be saved to sin no more. Amen. Keep running, Christian. Don't lose heart. Every setback, every failure, every heartache has a purpose. God is conforming us into the image of His Son. Now, I want to look in these verses and for us to notice the Trinity at work in your redemption. To be a Christian is to affirm that the God we know and love is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God is three persons. Each person is co-eternal and fully God. And there's one God. That's how scripture, those are the boundaries of orthodox Christianity. So God is three persons. Each person is co-eternal and fully God. There is one God. That sounds like a contradiction. No, it's how God has revealed himself to us. These things are true. In these verses, verses two through four, we learn what God has done for us and why there's no condemnation. Follow me here in verse 2. We read that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And the reason the condemnation has been lifted is because the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life, that's the Holy Spirit. Verses 3 through 4, Paul continues by stating that there's no condemnation because what the law was powerless to do Weakened by our sinful nature, God did by sending His Son and the likeness of human flesh to be a sin offering for us. Jesus came, the one who knew no sin, to live in this world and to die the death He did as a sin sacrifice. So when we look at the Trinity here and putting these connections together, let's look at God the Father first. What has God the Father done for your salvation? Well, we know clearly from Scripture, He sent Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world. There is no other Savior. There is no other Redeemer. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Though He was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Through the Son, God condemns sin and sinful man so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met for those who are joined to Christ. How are we joined to Christ? By faith. By trust in Him alone. This is why Romans 8.1 is really the theme of the gospel. And Paul continues on in verses 3 and 4 by speaking of uh, the work of Christ 
which we'll get to now. God the Son, He was a sin offering. And He he performed a redeeming work. Redemption is really a borrowed term from the ancient world of business. Just, Just as propitiation is borrowed from the ancient world of religion, it refers to buying something off the slave market of sin. So in a very real sense, what Jesus Christ has done to us in coming to us in salvation is to deliver us from the slave market of sin. His death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God so that we might have free and full access to him. When he, was, when he died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn in two. Big elaborate tapestry that told everyone, stay out. You can't enter in. This holy of holies represents the one and true God and you were sinful. Isn't it something when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn in two, signifying what? Access to the Father. Amen. We have an advocate with him. We're called to come to him through the finished work of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is brought into the picture Verse 2, we noted the the law of the spirit of life. Verse 4, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. And what has the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, done in salvation? He has brought regeneration to you. The spirit of God has come in the mystery of salvation and made you a new person in Jesus Christ. Has brought to you regeneration and life and the gift of faith and has united you Believer to Jesus Christ in Christ. He has united you to Christ. And because of that, there's no condemnation upon you. We see this in the image that Paul mentions in Ephesians 5, uh, the union of the husband and wife. Paul ends his teaching about marriage by saying, this is a, a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church and yesterday we had a wedding here. It was a glorious event. And uh, just really sensed the Lord moving in many ways. And to stand with Andrew and Raquel and just reminded of that, that picture. Every marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. How he washes his bride with the water of the word. So by joining us to Christ, the Holy Spirit seals our salvation and makes possible this great declaration. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to close with maybe some application here on the work of the Holy Spirit and our, our, our really God's call upon us to, to live a spirit-filled life. What does that look like? Um, living to please God, is that even possible? As a believer, yeah. We're called to live a life that's pleasing to Him. How do I know what's pleasing to him? I, I was reminded earlier um, last month, uh, just in the, our study in Providence on Wednesday night, just looking at what pleases God. Is it what God commanded? Many people try to throw out the authority of Scripture and try to please God based on what they think is right. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it only leads to destruction. D. James Kennedy asked one man, name me one thing, one single thing that you could do that would please God other than keeping his commandments. And the man said, well, we could love God. 
<laughs> well, that misses the whole point. What's the greatest commandment? To love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. It must be what God commands. Secondly, it must be done out of a heart purified by faith. This brings us back to the gospel, justification by faith. If I'm seeking to please God on my own, that will never work. The Bible teaches that that we are in the flesh and those who are in the flesh apart from Christ cannot please God. The natural man's heart is polluted and he is at enmity with God and therefore it must be cleansed. How is a sinful heart cleansed? By faith in Jesus Christ. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11 tells us. So, we have the right, need to have the right motivation as well. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do it to the glory of God. Sometimes our motivations can be because we fear man. Sometimes our motivation because we love the praise of others. But we can live a life that's pleasing to God if we are really doing what we do out of a sense of love and devotion to the Lord. You ever, you ever been a part of a ministry and or serving someone and you think, I, don't, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> I really don't want to do this. Maybe you're in a bad mood or uh, you know, you got issues, you got demands, you got pressures. I want to encourage you to bring this prayer. I never think like that, by the way. But I want to encourage you to maybe bring this prayer into your life. Lord, I want to do this for your glory. I want to do this for a reward. I want to, I want to do this to please you. So I, I go in with a right heart attitude and I want to be an instrument in your hands that you would be glorified in this situation. I can tell you, that's a prayer he'll honor every single time. So we're commanded as believers. Let's close with this. Two commands. One's in Galatians. Galatians 5. You can turn there. And the other's in Ephesians 5. Galatians 5, Ephesians 5. They're right next to each other. So that'll make it easy. Two commands. The first would be Galatians 5.16. But I say, Paul writing to the Galatians and really wanting to establish that we're not saved by works of the law. Galatians and Romans have many similar themes. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. So this is an idea of an ongoing walking with the Spirit of God. How do I do that in real time? That means I'm communing with God regularly through my day. I'm walking in the Spirit. I'm watching what I'm thinking. I'm watching what I'm saying. I'm watching what I'm doing. I'm wanting to surrender all of my life to Him. That sounds pretty dominating. That's the Christian life. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify Him with your bodies, with everything you do. Walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you're thinking about God and being yielded to Christ and walking in the Spirit... Uh, the desires of the flesh um, are overcome. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. We've got a civil war going on sometimes. Who am I going to live for? He goes on to say they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
But if you're led by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're under grace. And you're free by the power of God dwelling in you through the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. It's a command. Secondly, be filled with the Spirit. Let's, let's look at Ephesians 5, verse 18. I never grow tired of coming to this passage. It helps me in my walk with Christ more than I can say. This is a command. He says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. So the Christian life requires thought, intention, discipline, purpose, all the things that a lot of people just aren't interested in. But you can't, you can't grow in anything you do without those. And here, looking carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time. Verse 18, don't get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery. So he's, he's contrasting the worship of the pagans with the worship of the people of God who follow Christ. Don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, a sodia, a hopeless and curable sickness, is what that means. But be filled with the Spirit. Keep being continually filled with the Spirit. That's the tense. Keep being continually filled with the Spirit. So my being filled with the Spirit earlier this morning is not sufficient for what I'm facing now. The idea is to continually be yielded over to Him, allowing Him to move in your life, being honest with Him about your thoughts and the intentions of your heart, bringing the Word of God in to check your motivations to be filled with the Spirit. And there's a wonderful way to determine whether you're being filled with the Spirit. I think we all know when we're not being filled with the Spirit, don't you? Like when you say something crabby to your wife, or you, 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 you injure somebody, you're thinking thoughts that are wrong, you got bitterness issues, anger issues. We, we know when we're not being filled with the Spirit. So what do we do when we're not being filled with the Spirit? It's a command and it's something that happens to you, believer. You confess it, you repent of it, and you call upon God to, to lead you. Lord, I want to be filled with the Spirit. And how do I know I'm filled with the Spirit? He gives some indicators here in this passage. One, I have joy. I have joy. There's joy within my heart. How do we know that? He says... Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. There's a joy in the Lord when we're being filled with the Spirit. We give thanks for God's call on our life. We're thankful for the ways that He moves in our life and for His provision and what He's doing. There's within our heart a melody. Not only that, this also communicates a deep fellowship with God, making melody in your heart to, to, making melody to the Lord in your heart or with your heart. That, that is part of a, a, a Christian life. I, I'm singing to the Lord. I have fellowship with Him. I'm talking to Him. I'm growing in that relationship. There's a, I think it's the second verse of Marching to Zion. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. But children of the heavenly King... But children of the heavenly king shall speak their joys abroad. Nick Ripkin, in his book, The Insanity of Obedience, I think it's in our library. It would be worth the read. He tells the story of Dmitri, this Russian believer who was arrested, persecuted, and then sent to a Siberian prison. 
And they're persecuted by the guards, cruel guards, 1,500 hardened criminals. And this believer put in jail for his faith, said there were two things that sustained me. One, every morning he would get up and he would sing a heart song to the Lord. The hymns and songs that he had learned as a believer. How do you redeem, how do you redeem your quote? Or, how do you redeem your commute? Sorry. How do you redeem your commute? I pray with song. Sing to the Lord. Learn these songs. Hide them in your heart. Dimitri said, it sustained me in prison. So every morning he would get up and he would sing a praise to God and the prisoners would curse him. The guards would beat him. But every morning, he lifted his voice and praised to God. And he wasn't allowed paper and pen, so when he'd find a scrap of, of paper, he would write on it with a pencil that he scrounged, and he would write scriptures that he had memorized, and he would put them on the wall. He would begin his day in praise to God, to the curses of his fellow prisoners and the, and the harm of the guards, but he would give praise to his God and God sustained him through that imprisonment. And toward the end of his stay, his testimony was that as he was taken and beaten, that 1,500 other prisoners came out and began to sing with Dimitri because they'd heard him do it every morning for years. And the word of God, praise in the word of God. Praise in the word of God. Deep fellowship with God. Notice something else, thankful. Giving thanks, it says in verse 20. Giving thanks always. I was so refreshed and this morning talking to a brother who said, you know, I just was really discouraged and uh, depressed. And, you know, I just, someone challenged me to begin to give thanks to God for the wonderful things he's done and flip my world around. Little little exercise to just begin to give thanks. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. When I'm sad sacking it, and I'm, I'm saying within myself, woe is me, I got such a tough life. I know I'm not walking in the Spirit. I know I'm not being filled with the Spirit. Because part of the mark of being a Spirit-filled believer is you're thankful. You're thankful. Yeah, but what, you know, you're thankful. Not only that, one more thing, we're submissive too. Do you realize this is the command on the front end of all of Paul's teaching on marriage? This is it. The best marriage counseling I can give, be filled with the Spirit. And he says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. We're submissive people. That doesn't sound very powerful. Oh no, there's a great power in it. There's great power in humility. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. Doesn't mean there aren't times to take action. I'm just, let's take it at face value. We're a submissive people to God's roles and God's ways. That's how I know. I'm walking in the spirit. That's how I know. I'm filled with the spirit is to have a heart to be submissive to what he's called me to do and to walk within the confines of his word. Life in the spirit set free from the bondage of sin and death. May God help us to live such a life. I don't know how this message has touched you this morning, but I'm aware that when we gather, there are always those who are in need of Christ. You've heard the gospel. You've heard why that's important.
um, not only to be reconciled with God and forgiven, but, but to see that he's, he's your greatest need. The one who created you is the, also the only one who can redeem you. And he's done that in a magnanimous way through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are without Jesus Christ, meaning you don't have a saving relationship with him, there's never been a, a time where you've repented of your sins and called on his name, I would offer this well-meant free offer, offer the gospel that you turn to Christ, you believe on him, and enter into that wonderful shade of no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful place to be. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, a substitutionary death. He rose again from the dead. He's a living savior. And the call for men and women everywhere right now is to repent and turn to him. He's, he's, he's humanity's only savior. There will never be another. Amen. And he's the greatest need in your life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Would you come to Christ today? And simple faith. I know I can't save myself. I know I can't earn heaven based on my good works. I need Christ and only what he did. I'll be here at the front to pray with you. But let's close in prayer as our praise team comes. Father, we thank you for this life-giving message of Romans 8. And we are grateful, Lord, that we are not in condemnation because of Christ Jesus. And I pray for those who feel the weight of their sin, who feel just the great need for your redemption, that they would stop doing it alone and come to terms with what you've said and what you've provided in Christ. Would you bless this responding in faith time? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you come.